Chapter Twenty Eight of the Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Twenty Eight. At that hour, the heroine of the susceptible clerk's romance was engaged in brightening the rosy little coal fire under the white mantelpiece in her pretty white and blue boudoir. Four photographs, all framed in decorous plain silver, went to the anthracite's fierce destruction, frames and all, and three packets of letters and notes in a charming Florentine treasure-box of painted wood. Nor was the box, any more than the silver frames, spared this rousing finish. Thrown heartily upon live coal, the fine wood sparked forth in stars, then burst into an alarming blaze which scorched the white mantelpiece but Lucy stood and looked on without moving. It was not Eugene who told her what had happened at Isabel's door. When she got home she found Fanny Minifer waiting for her, a secret excursion of Fanny's, for the purpose, presumably, of letting out again, because that was what she did. She told Lucy everything except her own lamentable part in the production of the recent miseries, and concluded with a tribute to George. The worst of it is, he thinks he's been such a hero, and Isabel does too, and that makes him more than twice as awful. It's been the same all his life. Everything he did was noble and perfect. He had a domineering nature to begin with, and she let it go on, and fostered it, till it absolutely ruled her. I never saw a plainer case of a person's fault making them pay for having it. She goes about overseeing the packing, and praising George, and pretending to be perfectly cheerful about what he's making her do, and about the dreadful things he's done. She pretends he did such a fine thing, so manly and protective, going to Mrs. Johnson, and so heroic, doing what his principles made him, even though he knew what it would cost him with you. And all the while it's almost killing her, what he said to your father. She's always been lofty enough, so to speak, and had the greatest idea of the Ambersons being superior to the rest of the world and all that, but rudeness, or anything like making a scene, or any bad manners, they always just made her sick but she could never see what George's manners were. Oh, it's been a terrible adulation. It's going to be a task for me, living in that big house all alone. You must come and see me. I mean, after they've gone, of course. I'll go crazy if I don't see something of people. I'm sure you'll come as often as you can. I know you too well to think you'll be sensitive about coming there, or being reminded of George. Thank heaven you're too well balanced. Miss Fanny concluded, with a profound fervor, you're too well balanced to let anything affect you deeply about that that monkey. The four photographs and the painted Florentine bogs went to their cremation within the same hour that Miss Fanny spoke, and a little later Lucy called her father in as he passed her door, and pointed to the blackened area on the underside of the mantelpiece, and to the burnt heap upon the coal, where some metallic shapes still retained outline. She flung her arms about his neck in passionate sympathy, telling him that she knew what had happened to him and presently he began to comfort her, and managed an embarrassed laugh. "'Well, well,' he said. "'I was too old for such foolishness to be getting into my head anyhow.' "'No, no,' she sobbed. "'And if you knew how I despised myself for—for for ever having thought one instant about—oh, Miss Fanny called him the right name, that monkey. He is.' "'There, there, I think I agree with you,' Eugene said, grimly, and in his eyes there was a steady light of anger that was to last.' "'Yes, I think I agree with you about that.' "'There's only one thing to do with such a person,' she said vehemently. "'That's to put him out of our thoughts forever. Forever.' 
and yet the next day at six o'clock, which was the hour, Fanny had told her, when George and his mother were to leave upon their long journey, Lucy touched that scorched place on her mantle with her hand, just as the little clock above it struck. Then, after this odd, unconscious gesture, she went to a window and stood between the curtains, looking out into the cold November dusk, and in spite of every reasoning and reasonable power within her, a pang of loneliness struck through her heart. The dim street below her window, the dark houses across the way, the vague air itself, all looked empty and cold, and most of all uninteresting. Something more sombre than November dusk took the colour from them, and gave them that air of desertion. The light of her fire, flickering up behind her, showed suddenly a flying group of tiny snowflakes nearing the window-pane and for an instant she felt the sensation of being dragged through a snowdrift under a broken cutter with a boy's arms around her, an arrogant, handsome, too-conquering boy, who nevertheless did his best to get hurt himself, keeping her from any possible harm. She shook the picture out of her eyes indignantly, then came and sat before her fire, and looked long and long at the blackened mantelpiece. She did not have the mantelpiece repainted, and, since she did not, might as well have kept his photographs. One forgets what made the scar upon his hand, but not what made the scar upon his wall. She played no funeral march upon her piano, even though Chopin's romantic lamentation was then at the top of nine-tenths of the music-racks in the country, American youth having recently discovered this distinguished congeniality between itself and this deathless bit of deathly gloom. She did not even play Robin Adair. She played Bedelia and all the new cakewalks, for she was her father's housekeeper, and rightly looked upon the office as being the same as that of his heart-keeper. Therefore it was her affair to keep both house and heart in what state of cheerfulness might be contrived. She made him go out more than ever, made him take her to all the gaieties of that winter, declining to go herself unless he took her. And, though Eugene danced no more, and quoted Shakespeare to prove all light-foot caperings beneath the dignity of his age, she broke his resolution for him at the New Year's Eve assembly, and half coaxed, half dragged him forth upon the floor, and made him dance the New Year in with her. New faces appeared at the dances of the winter. New faces had been appearing everywhere, for that matter, and familiar ones were disappearing, merging into the increasing crowd, or gone forever, and missed a little and not long, for the town was growing and changing, as it never had grown and changed before. It was heaving up in the middle, incredibly. It was spreading incredibly, and as it heaved and spread it befouled itself and darkened its sky. Its boundary was mere shapelessness on the run. A raw new house would appear on a country road, four or five others would presently be built at intervals between it and the outskirts of the town, the country road would turn into an asphalt street with a brick-faced drug store and a frame grocery at a corner. Then bungalows and six-room cottages would swiftly speckle the open green spaces, and a farm had become a suburb which would immediately shoot out other suburbs into the country, on one side, and on the other join itself solidly to the city. You drove between pleasant fields and woodland groves one spring day, and in the autumn, passing over the same ground, you were warned off the tracks by an interurban trolley-car's gonging, and beheld, beyond cement sidewalks just dry, new house-owners busily moving in. Gasoline and electricity were performing the miracles that Eugene had predicted. But the great change was in the citizenry itself. What was left of the patriotic old-stock generation that had fought the Civil War, and subsequently controlled politics, 
had become venerable and was little heeded. The descendants of the pioneers and early settlers were merging into the new crowd, becoming part of it, little to be distinguished from it. What happened to Boston and to Broadway happened in degree to the Midland City. The old stock became less and less typical, and of the grown people who called the place home, less than a third had been born in it. There was a German quarter, there was a Jewish quarter, there was a Negro quarter, square miles of it, called Bucktown. There were many Irish neighborhoods, and there were large settlements of Italians, and of Hungarians, and of Romanians, and of Serbians, and other Balkan peoples. But not the emigrants themselves were the almost dominant type on the streets downtown. That type was the emigrant's prosperous offspring, descendant of the emigrations of the seventies and eighties and nineties, those great folk journeyings in search not so directly of freedom and democracy as of more money for the same labor. A new Midlander, in fact, a new American, was beginning dimly to emerge. A new spirit of citizenship had already sharply defined itself. It was idealistic, and its ideals were expressed in this new kind of young men in business downtown. They were optimists, optimists to the point of belligerence, their motto being, Boost, don't knock. And they were hustlers, believing in hustling and in honesty, because both paid. They loved their city and worked for it with a plutonic energy, which was always ardently vocal. They were viciously governed, but they sometimes went so far as to struggle for the better government, on account of the helpful effect of good government on the price of real estate, and betterment generally. The politicians could not go too far with them, and knew it. The idealists planned and strove and shouted that their city should become a better, better, and better city. And what they meant when they used the word better was more prosperous, and the core of their idealism was this. The more prosperous my beloved city, the more prosperous beloved I. They had one supreme theory, that the perfect beauty and happiness of cities and of human life was to be brought about by more factories. They had a mania for factories. There was nothing they would not do to cajole a factory away from another city, and they were never more piteously embittered than when another city cajoled one away from them. What they meant by prosperity was credit at the bank, but in exchange for this credit they got nothing that was not dirty, and therefore to a sane mind valueless, since whatever was cleaned was dirty again before the cleaning was half done. For as the town grew, it grew dirty with an incredible completeness. The idealists put up magnificent buildings, and boasted of them, but the buildings were begrimed before they were finished. They boasted of their libraries, of their monuments and statues, and poured soot on them. They boasted of their schools, but the schools were dirty, like the children within them. This was not the fault of the children or their mothers, it was the fault of the idealists, who said, the more dirt, the more prosperity. They drew patriotic, optimistic breaths of the flying, powdered filth of the streets and took the foul and heavy smoke with gusto in the profundities of their lungs. Boost! Don't knock, they said. And every year or so they boomed a great clean-up week, when everybody was supposed to get rid of the tin cans in his backyard. They were happiest when the tearing down and building up were most riotous, and when new factory districts were thundering into life. In truth, the city came to be like the body of a great dirty man, skinned to show his busy works, yet wearing a few barbaric ornaments. And such a figure, carved, colored, and discolored, and set up in the marketplace, would have done well enough as the god of the new people. 
Such a god they had indeed made in their own image, as all peoples make the god they truly serve, though of course certain of the idealists went to church on Sunday, and there knelt to another, considered to be impractical in business. But while the growing went on, this god of their marketplace was their true god, their familiar and spirit control. They did not know that they were his helplessly obedient slaves, nor could they ever hope to realize their serfdom as the first step toward becoming free men, until they should make the strange and hard discovery that matter should serve man's spirit. Prosperity meant good credit at the bank, black lungs, and housewives' purgatory. The women fought the dirt all they could, but if they let the air into their houses they let in the dirt. It shortened their lives and kept them from the happiness of ever seeing anything white. And thus, as the city grew, the time came when Lucy, after a hard struggle, had to give up her blue and white curtains and her white walls. Indoors she put everything into dull grey and brown, and outside had the little house painted the dark green nearest to black. Then she knew, of course, that everything was as dirty as ever, but was a little less distressed, because it no longer looked as dirty as it was. These were bad times for Amberson addition. This quarter, already old, lay within a mile of the centre of the town, but business moved in other directions, and the addition's share of prosperity was only the smoke and dirt, with the bank credit left out. The owners of the original big houses sold them or rented them to boarding-house keepers, and the tenants of the multitude of small houses moved farther out, where the smoke was thinner, or into apartment-houses which were built by dozens now. Cheaper tenants took their places, and the rents were lower and lower, and the houses shabbier and shabbier, for all these shabby houses, burning soft coal, did their best to help in the destruction of their own value. They helped to make the quarter so dingy and the air so foul to breathe that no one would live there who had money enough to get farther out, where there were glimpses of ungrayed sky and breaths of cleaner winds. And with the coming of the new speed, farther out was now as close to business as the addition had been in the days of its prosperity distances had ceased to matter. The five new houses, built so closely where had been the fine old lawn of the Amberson mansion, did not look new. When they were a year old they looked as old as they would ever look, and two of them were vacant, having never been rented, for the Major's mistake about apartment houses had been a disastrous one. He guessed wrong, George Amberson said. He guessed wrong at just the wrong time. Housekeeping in a house is harder than in an apartment and where the smoke and dirt are as thick as they are in the addition, women can't stand it. People were crazy for apartments. Too bad he couldn't have seen it in time. Poor man, he digs away at his ledgers by his old gas drop-light lamp almost every night. He still refuses to let the mansion be torn up for wiring, you know. But he had one painful satisfaction this spring. He got his taxes lowered. Amberson laughed ruefully, and Fanny Minifer asked how the Major could have managed such an economy. They were sitting upon the veranda at Isabel's one evening, during the third summer of the absence of their nephew and his mother, and the conversation had turned toward Amberson finances. "'I said it was a painful satisfaction, Fanny,' he explained. "'The property has gone down in value, and they assist it lower than they did fifteen years ago.' "'But farther out—oh, yes, farther out. Prices are magnificent farther out, and farther in, too. We just happen to be in the wrong spot, that's all.' Not that I don't think something could be done if father would let me have a hand, but he won't. He can't, I suppose, I ought to say. He's always done his own figuring, he says, and it's his lifelong habit to keep his affairs, and even his books, to himself, and just hand out the money. Heaven knows he's done enough of that. He sighed, and both were silent, 
looking out at the long flares of the constantly passing automobile headlights, shifting in vast geometric demonstrations against the darkness. Now and then a bicycle wound its nervous way among these portents, or at long intervals a surrey or buggy plodded forlornly by. "'There seem to be so many ways of making money nowadays,' Fanny said, thoughtfully. "'Every day I hear of a new fortune some person has got hold of one way or another. Nearly always it's somebody you never heard of. It doesn't seem all to be in just making motor-cars. I hear there's a great deal in manufacturing these things that motor-cars use, new inventions particularly. I met dear old Frank Bronson the other day, and he told me—' "'Oh, yes, even dear old Frank's got the fever,' Amberson laughed. "'He's as wild as any of them. He told me about this invention he's gone into. Millions in it. Some new electric headlight better than anything yet. Every car in America can't help but have him, and all that. He's putting half he's laid by into it. And the fact is, he almost talked me into getting father to finance me enough for me to go into it. Poor father, he's financed me before. I suppose he would again if I had the heart to ask him. And this seems to be a good thing, though probably old Frank is a little too sanguine. At any rate, I've been thinking it over. So have I, Fanny admitted. He seemed to be certain it would pay twenty-five per cent the first year, and enormously more after that. And I'm only getting four on my little principal. People are making such enormous fortunes out of everything to do with motor-cars. It does seem as if— She paused. Well, I told him I'd think it over, seriously. We may turn out to be partners and millionaires, then, Amberson laughed. I thought I would ask Eugene's advice. I wish you would, said Fanny. He probably knows exactly how much profit there would be in this. Eugene's advice was to go slow. He thought electric lights for automobiles were coming some day, but probably not until certain difficulties could be overcome. Altogether he was discouraging, but by this time his two friends had the fever as thoroughly as old Frank Bronson himself had it, for they had been with Bronson to see the light working beautifully in a machine-shop. They were already enthusiastic, and after asking Eugene's opinion they argued with him, telling him how they had seen with their own eyes that the difficulties he mentioned had been overcome. Perfectly, Fanny cried, and if it worked in the shop, it's bound to work any place, isn't it? He would not agree that it was bound to, yet being pressed was driven to admit that it might, and retiring from what was developing into an oratorical contest, repeated a warning about not putting too much into it. George Amberson also laid stress on this caution later, though the Major had financed him again and he was going in. "'You must be careful to leave yourself a margin of safety, Fanny,' he said. "'I'm confident that this is a pretty conservative investment of its kind, and all the chances are with us, but you must be careful to leave yourself enough to fall back on in case anything should go wrong.' Fanny deceived him. In the impossible event of anything going wrong she would have enough left to live on, she declared, and laughed excitedly, for she was having the best time that had come to her since Wilbur's death. Like so many women for whom money has always been provided without their understanding how, she was prepared to be a thorough and irresponsible plunger. Amberson, in his wearier way, shared her excitement, and in the winter, when the exploiting company had been formed, and he brought Fanny her importantly engraved shares of stock, he reverted to his prediction of possibilities, made when they first spoke of the new light. "'We seem to be partners all right,' he laughed. "'Now let's go ahead and be millionaires before Isabel and young George come home.' "'When they come home,' she echoed, sorrowfully and it was a phrase which found an evasive echo in Isabel's letters. In these letters Isabel was always planning pleasant things that she and Fanny and Major and George and her brother George would do, when she and her son came home. They will find things pretty changed, I'm afraid, Fanny said, if they ever do come home. 
Amberson went over the next summer and joined his sister and nephew in Paris, where they were living. "'Isabel does want to come home,' he told Fanny gravely, on the day of his return in October. "'She's wanted to for a long while, and she ought to come while she can stand the journey.' And he amplified this statement, leaving Fanny looking startled and solemn, when Lucy came by to drive him out to dinner at the new house that Eugene had just completed. This was no white and blue cottage, but a great Georgian picture in brick, five miles north of Amberson Edition, with four acres of its own hedged land between it and its next neighbour, and Amberson laughed wistfully as they turned in between the stone and brick gate-pillars, and rolled up the crushed stone driveway. "'I wonder, Lucy, if history's going on forever repeating itself,' he said. "'I wonder if this town is going on building up things and rolling over them, as poor father once said it was rolling over his poor old heart. It looks it.' Here's the Amberson Mansion again, only it's Georgian instead of nondescript Romanesque. But it's just the same Amberson Mansion that my father built long before you were born. The only difference is that it's your father who's built this one now. It's all the same in the long run." Lucy did not quite understand, but she laughed as a friend should, and taking his arm showed him through vasty rooms where ivory-panelled walls and trim window-hangings were reflected dimly in dark, rugless floors, and the sparse furniture showed that Lucy had been collecting with a long purse. "'By Jove!' he said, "'you have been going at it. Fanny tells me you had a great housewarming dance, and you kept right on being the belle of the ball, not any softer harder than you used to be.' Fred Kinney's father says you've refused Fred so often he's gotten engaged to Janie Sharon just to prove that somebody would have him in spite of his hair. Well, the material world do move, and you've got the new kind of house that it moves into nowadays, if it has the new price. And even the grand old expanses of plate glass we used to be so proud of at the other Amberson mansion, they've gone too, with the crowded heavy gold and red stuff. Curious. We've still got the plate-glass windows, though all we can see out of them is the smoke in the old Johnson house, which is a counter-jumper's boarding-house now, while you've got a view, and you cut it all up into little panes. Well, you're pretty refreshingly out of the smoke up here. Yes, for a while, Lucy laughed, until it comes and we have to move out farther. No, you'll stay here, he assured her. It will be somebody else who will move out farther. He continued to talk of the house after Eugene arrived, and gave them no account of his journey until they had retired from the dinner-table to Eugene's library, a grey and shadowy room, where their coffee was brought. Then, equipped with a cigar, which seemed to occupy his attention, Amberson spoke in a casual tone of his sister and her son. "'I found Isabel as well as usual,' he said. "'Only I'm afraid, as usual, isn't particularly well. Sidney and Amelia have been up to Paris in the spring, but she hadn't seen them.' Somebody told her that they were there, it seems. They had left Florence and were living in Rome. Amelia is becoming a Catholic and is said to give great sums to charity and to go about with the gentry in consequence. But Sidney is ailing and lives in a wheelchair most of the time. It struck me that Isabel ought to be doing the same thing. He paused, bestowing minute care upon the removal of the little band from his cigar. And, as he seemed to have concluded his narrative, Eugene spoke out of the shadow, beyond a heavily shaded lamp. "'What do you mean by that?' he asked quietly. "'Oh, she's cheerful enough,' said Amberson, still not looking at either his young hostess or her father. "'At least,' he added, "'she manages to seem so. I'm afraid she hasn't really been well for several years. She isn't stout, you know. She hasn't changed in looks much, and she seems rather alarmingly short of breath for a slender person. Father's been that way for years, of course, but never nearly so much as Isabel is now. Of course, she makes nothing of it, but—' It seemed rather serious to me when I noticed that she had to stop and rest twice to get up the one short flight of steps in their two-floor apartment. 
I told her I thought she ought to make George let her come home. Let her? Eugene repeated in a low voice. Does she want to? She doesn't urge it. George seems to like the life there, in his grand, gloomy, peculiar way. And of course she will never change about being proud of him and all that. He's quite a swell. But in spite of anything she said, rather than because, I know she does indeed want to come home. She would like to be with father, of course, and I think she's—well, she intimated one day that she feared it might even happen that she wouldn't get to see him again. At the time I thought she referred to his age and feebleness, but on the boat coming home I remembered the little look of wistfulness, yet resignation, with which she said it. And it struck me all at once that I'd been mistaken. I saw she was really thinking of her own state of health. "'I see,' said Eugene, his voice even lower than it had been before. "'And you say he won't let her come home?' Amerson laughed, but still continued to be interested in his cigar. "'Oh, I don't think he uses force. He's very gentle with her. I doubt if the subject is mentioned between them, and yet—and yet, knowing my interesting nephew as you do, wouldn't you think that that was about the way to put it?' "'Knowing him as I do, yes,' said Eugene slowly. Yes, I should think that was about the way to put it. A murmur out of the shadows beyond him, a faint sound, musical and feminine, yet expressive of a notable intensity, seemed to indicate that Lucy was of the same opinion. End of chapter 28